1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Martina Mampieri. We will be discussing her newly published book, Living Under the Evil Pope, the Hebrew Chronicle of Pope Paul IV, By Benjamin Nehemia Ben Elnatan from Civitanova Marche from the 16th century, published in Leiden, Netherlands by Brill Publishers, 2020. Martina Mampieri is a Martin Buber Fellow at the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is also a lecturer in the Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jewry at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Martina, I'm thrilled to be in dialogue with you today.
0: Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you for the invitation for to this wonderful podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm humbled to be in your presence and I'm honored to have the privilege of listening to you and learning from you in our dialogue today.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: To begin, can you tell us about your scholarly and educational background? How have your intellectual experiences and your international experiences abroad shaped your academic career and your publications?
0: Yeah. So I was born near Rome. Um, Then I studied all my life in Italy until 25 when I, I did my PhD And so first of all, I studied history of religions with a particular focus on uh, Judaism at the Sapienza University in Rome. And then I did a double PhD at the University of Roma Tre and the University of Hamburg, where I wrote my dissertation. Um, So after that, I traveled quite a lot. Um, So I left Germany. and I got several postdoc positions. And first in Israel for six months in 2018. Then I was collaborating on another project uh, in Paris. And then I got uh, two additional postdocs, one at Harvard, the Center for Jewish Studies in 2018-19. And then in 1920, I was in the, the Lichtenberg Colleg in, um, in Göttingen in Germany. And then in 2020, I returned to Israel, thanks to the Martin Buber Fellowship, where I'm currently uh, at the Hebrew University. So yeah, my I would say that this international background really helped me to learn many languages and to um, enhance my career as a scholar, as a historian, uh, reading manuscripts in different languages, and also um, text, secondary sources for archival, both for archival research and for writing. Um, So comparing the sources and then writing, the the actual writing of um, scholarly articles and this book.
1: In what ways does your book build on previous scholarship on 16th century Jewish history? Which studies of this period have inspired you? Which historians were your primary influences? And which of them inspired you to prepare this book?
0: Well, I I must say that I started when I was um, preparing my proposal for a PhD program in Rome. I... I was really struck by um a note by Joseph Chaimi Rushalmi Zahor, Jewish history and Jewish memory, which was published in 1982. Um, because he wrote in a note that there was, you know, I was very interested in uh, historical writing. So in the, in the writing of history and Jewish historiography in the between the Middle Ages and the early modern period. Because my master thesis was about the um, the historical writing of uh, the Seferi hassin by Abraham Zakuto. Um, so I was really intrigued by the relations, by the, the importance of history and for Jews and the, what kind of importance had historical writing for Jewish people in the era of exile, so during the diaspora and after the the expulsion, in particular after the expulsion of 1492 from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, So I was really looking at Yerushalmi's note, and I found just in a very brief footnote from this book published 1982, in which Yerushalmi wrote, noted down that there was this certain chronicle, the Divrea Amin Shalapifur Paolo Arrevi, so this chronicle of Paul, Paul IV, that was um, investigated by Isaiah Zone in 1930. But after that, no one really wrote about it. So I started, the very first thing I did when I, when I found this note was to look at Zone's work um, and so I found out that so Isaiah Zone was a Galician, Galician scholar from was born in 1887, uh, and then he wrote um, this. Um, he published this this chronicle in 1930 for the very first time in Tarbitz and then in several um, in several parts. And then 1954 he republished the full uh, manuscript in for Mossad Bialik as a book. Um, So I was really uh, trying to understand where Zonne found this chronicle, uh, why this chronicle was important, and why the chronicle was never studied by anyone before Zonne. So um, in his introduction, Zonne wrote that he had found this chronicle, this manuscript, and probably around August 1930. And, but he didn't say a word about how he found, where he found the chronicle, where he found the manuscript. If he tried to buy the manuscript, if someone else had give them, you know, gave gave him the permission to look at the manuscript, he only said that he had the manuscript in his hands for a couple of hours, and then he decided to copy the manuscript very in a very uh, quick way, um, and then he had the permission to publish the chronicle the manuscript as it was. So basically what Zone did was to provide an introduction to this manuscript. And then he published it in Hebrew uh, with some footnotes, some historical footnotes about the content. So I would say that, yeah, Yerushalmi and Zone were the first two studies I look at to, um, you know, pose the to build the the fundamentals for my research, my PhD dissertation, and then my first book.
1: Who was Isaiah Sonne? Can you describe his contributions to Jewish studies?
0: Yeah, so Isaiah Sonne I was a, a scholar, as I said, was from uh, Galicia, and he was immigrated to Italy um, in the nineteen tens. Uh, to study at the rabbinical uh, college um, of Italy, so in Florence, like many other Galician people, he um, got some funding to uh, learn and obtain his rabbinical degree uh, in Florence. Then, for several time, for several years, he lived in Italy, and he it was a very he was an expert paleographer and bibliographer um much more expert than anyone else in italy so that's why i was charged by the union of the italian jewish communities to um, prepare a catalogue of the materials like uh, bibliographical materials manuscripts uh, early printed books but also ketbot and the epigraphical materials from the local from the jewish community of italy so he had to prepare this catalog and to assess the situation of the all the libraries in all over Italy, and including the colonies, Italian colonies in the Aegean Sea. Um, but this project never saw the light of the day. Um, so this project, in the end, um, didn't go anywhere. Uh, but Zone was still a very important figure for Italian Jewish uh, studies. Um, and of course, because um, so in 19, so let's say that for 20 years he lived in Italy, um, and then in 1936 he was nominated director of the Italian um, Rabbinical College on the island of Rhodes, which was a colony, which was a colony of the Italian Kingdom back then. So he was the director for uh, this college for two years until 1938, when the race laws were enacted. So because it was Italian, it was not Italian, but he lived in Italy. He was forced to live also Rhodes, which was a colony of Italy. So technically it was Italy. Um, So he left and he went to Jerusalem for a very short time before he was then invited by the Hebrew College in Cincinnati to join them, to join a college as a refugee scholar. In, 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 there is a refugee scholar in the refugee scholars program that was established by the Hebrew College. So Zonel moved then to, um, to the U.S., 1940, and he was the librarian who was the uh, curator of the Jewish Studies collection and the Hebron College Library. And he was also a lecturer for a long time. And then he died in 1960. So um, I think it's it's impossible to describe now the importance of Zone and his contribution to the Jewish studies, to Jewish studies, um, in some minutes, um, because I'm actually preparing a book about him and about his Involvement and the development of the field of uh, the history of Jewish printing and the history of the Jewish book and uh, between Europe and Palestine Israel and the US. Um, So yeah, but he was a very it was a major scholar very neglected for many reasons that I will uh, investigate in the book and the second book. Um, But he was a major scholar and in jury studies so i really hope i will be able to um, shed new light and reappraise his contribution his figure and contribution to jury studies
1: can you tell us about how you went about researching and writing this book can you tell us about your experiences conducting archival research can you tell us about your historical methodology
0: yeah um, so, you know, when we, when I started, I, I first did the proposal, then the proposal was accepted. The very first thing I did was to look at Zona's work. So I really look at the text of the, this chronicle, and I wanted to make sure that this chronicle was not a forged manuscript, because um, basically Zona published, um, so in his edition from 1930, he published a manuscript that was that is today at the National Library of Israel. It's the only copy existing in the world, at least that we know. Um, so, and it's a manuscript from the 19th century. So this was a problem for me because, um, you know, we, so the content of the Chronicle is about Paul IV and is about, uh, it was written by some moneylender in 1559 immediately after the death of the Pope. So I really asked, the very first question I asked myself was, is this manuscript authentic? Is this a forged manuscript? So to understand that, I really had to look at the text and and check if the content, whether the content was reliable or not. And to verify that I had to, of course, look for um, any, any relevant studies that were written about the pontificate of Paul IV. And the Jews in the state of the church during this time during his, pontifi- during his pontificate, but I also need to do, I had to do archival research to verify the contents because also because Zonne didn't have access to the archives and to the same materials I, I, I had to look at and during my research. So basically my research was um, about um, the life of the Jews and Civitano la Marche and in the region of Marche, so in, at large in the state of the church. And then, of course, archival research also entailed any kinds of sources about Paul IV, his life, his pontificate, his decrees, laws, and uh, all other cardinals and uh, other people working for him in the papal court. And And then of course, the general situation of Italy and other things that are mentioned by the chronicler and his um, account. So basically my main, um, so I travel a lot and I had lots of fun in the archives, all both in Italy and also in the US and in Israel. Um, So I would say to summarize, I would say that in Israel, I went to look at I went to the archives of the American Jewish Archive, I went to the American Jewish Archives at the Hebrew Union College to look at Zonne's archival correspondence. Um so Zone's archives and all the papers and corris- private correspondence that is held in his papers to try and understand where Zone found the manuscript. Um and the same in Israel because his archives is split are split between Israel, the National Library of Israel, and the American Jewish Archives, and and then my main archives in Italy were, uh, of course, the the local archives of Civitanova Marche, where the author of the Chronicle lived, and the state archives around Civitanova, the most important cities around Civitanova. Uh, all the sources from Rome. So the state archives of Rome, and the capital archives, so the city hall archives um, of of Rome, and all the archives um, related to the Inquisition. So the Roman Inquisition archives, and the the secret Vatican archives today, they changed their name, so they're called Apostolic Vatican Archives, but when I was doing my research, they were called Secret Vatican Archives and the Vatican Library. Yeah, so that's that was my my that was part of my trips. Uh, and of course, you know, when you do archival research, then you want to also compare the sources with other uh, edited volumes, edited volumes about so other sources. So I traveled a lot. I visited lots of libraries, and I had lots of fun during my PhD. Yeah.
1: Can you summarize your book for us? What are the primary themes? What message does your research convey?
0: Yeah, so um, the book is divided into three main parts. So the first part is about Paul IV and the historical context to understand the pontificate of Paul IV was um, Pope for four years and something, Um, but he did lots of things, especially against the Jews. Um so the very first part is uh, looking at the center and the periphery of the state of the church during this time um, and also how the, you know the Jewish community of Civitanova was structured because we didn't ha- I didn't have anything to look at before I started my PhD. There were no studies about Civitanova and the Jewish community in Civitanova, so I really had to look at, the sources from the archives to have an idea of how the Jews were living, who were the Jews who were living there, what kind of relations that were between Jews and Christians in the city and the, from the 15th century to the 16th century when the Jewish community was active. Um, and then the second part was to look more specifically at the um, author. So ben, Benjamin, Benjamin or Benjamin Nehemiah Ben and Nathan. Uh, who in Italian is called uh, Guglielmo di Diodato. And so I was really looking at trying to figure out who was him, who was his family, where, where was his family, what kind of readings he had read during his life, what can what kind of sources he looked at to write this chronicle. And and then also I had some I had a chapter about the Historical um, an analysis, let's say about the the way he wrote history, and a comparison with other sources from the same time, from Jewish historiography, since sixteenth century Jewish historiography, um, and also a close up on the genre of this text, why this text, I think, needs to be has to be read. Um, you know, as a story of a miracle and a story of a salvation and as a story of Purim because uh, there are several elements in the book that really guide us in that direction to read this story called As a Miracle and as, you know, as, as the performance of a miracle. There are, set, there are many, many um, references to Purim and Aman and, you um, Esther Mordechai and in the chronicle. Um, The third part is the text itself. So when I I had when I when I started the PhD again, I we only had the Hebrew text by Zonne edited by Zonne in 1930. Um, We didn't have any sources in English about that. That I found in the very beginning. I found very very short. Um, um, translations of uh, one passage, two passages of this chronicle in Italian but there weren't many studies about it so I really had I I decided to translate the chronicle for the very first time into English to make the chronicle accessible understandable, readable not only by by scholars but also students because I think this book has to be um read and studied by people students who try i mean who study who learn uh, students who learn about the renaissance and the history of Jews and Christians in the state of the church in, in Italy in general by the state of the church in particular in the 16th century um, so yeah so it's uh, and I did, at the end of the book with um so I did a parallel translation of Hebrew and English and at the end of the book, I also provided a facsimile edition of the manuscript, with thanks to the National Library of Israel, um, because the manuscript is held there. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Can you explain the image on your book's front cover?
0: Yeah. So the image is uh, an anonymous engraving of Pope Leo IV, and you can see uh, the Pope with this finger. Going uh, up, um, and yeah, this is, uh, this engraving can be found in a biography, of Paul IV, the Fourth, the Vita Pauli Quarti, that was authored by Antonio Caracciolo, who was um, uh, a, a biographer of the Pope and was also a Teutine monk. And this this specific copy was printed in Cologne in uh, I think sixteen twelve, but. It's, in the early 17th century. And yeah, and this specific image comes from the Notre Dame University Library in Indiana. And they had this amazing copy and they, I'm really thankful for the permission to to have it on my cover, yeah.
1: What can you tell us about the life and biography of Benjamin Nehemiah Ben El-Natan? What were the formative events in his life what is known of his family his childhood and his early adulthood
0: yeah um so it, it's a very interesting person i would say uh, unfortunately we don't have much information about his life and his childhood and we have something about his family so thank the archival research really helped me to have some information very basic information about the family And about his father, uh, who was Emmanuel, Nathan Ben Emmanuel. Um, So he was um, probably a tailor, or he had um, a workshop where he was also a seller. Sometimes, you know, when you were a money lender, you were often also a merchant, or you were uh, a tailor, or you did some other things in the city. So, we have information about, we have evidence in the archives of uh, his father, um, probably coming um, to the city, was not a native of Civitanova, but he relocated to, um, with his family, to Civitanova probably in 1541 and from the Kingdom of Naples. So, imagine that Marche, uh, so the region Marche is really. A border, um, a very important, very important, very strategic, um, uh, has a very important strategic position in between the state of the church and the kingdom of Naples. So many Jews in 1540 and 1541, they were expelled from the kingdom of Naples and they went north. So when they stop in the north, they really stop in the border. So the lower border of the state of the church so that's why lots of jews who were expelled because uh, the kingdom of naples was essentially re- uh, ruled by the king by the king of spain so we imagine that you know the expulsion from spain from castile and aragon in 1492 lots of jews went to italy and most of them they settled in the king- in the kingdom of naples or they went to north africa they went to the ottoman empire They went to to all over the places, but I would say many of them settled in Italy, especially in Ancona, in Ferrara, where there were communities, um, where the the lords of the cities were uh, very welcoming and there were favorable conditions for trade. So um, we have also, as I said, lots of Jews were in the kingdom of Naples. So these people, 1541, 1540, 1541, they were expelled because the kingdom of Naples was Spain and they expelled all the Jews. So, also from there, they were forced to, to relocate and they relocated in the market. So, we have information that the family of the author was coming from the south. So they settled there probably in 1541, 42, because they bought a house. And we have evidence of that from the archives, from the original archive, original sources from Civitano La Marche. And we also have information. So his father was Emmanuel Benenatan, And uh, he had two children. So the author, Benjamin and Benjamin, and Samuel. Samuele and the sources is also Samuele's, Ben Diodati's, um, you know, Samuele Diodato in Italian. Um, so also Samuele was a tailor or he had a workshop where he was um, doing his business and he was also a merchant. And we also have evidence that he prepared, he created some, um uh Windows with uh, some linen and cotton for the city council of the city in the 16th century. It was very appreciated. So we know that this person was someone that the city council, Christian people trusted him to prepare the windows of the city council, all I mean, building. Um, we have, I also found evidence of their mother was a certain Smeralda, and I found the testament of her, uh, where she was, um, you, of course, the testament follows lots of formulas, standard formulas, um, as being legal documents, and then there are several donations that the woman wanted to give to um, people and to the orphans to uh, virgins and Jewish people um, Jewish communities so lots of money uh, and there, there is also the mention of a girl who is was the daughter of Samuele so her granddaughter um, so we have some information also about uh, Benjamin's wife um, was also a a certain woman named Stella, but um, we don't have a, we don't know really exactly what she was doing, um, how do they live, when they when they got married, if they had any children. It is very difficult to track these people down in the Christian archives because um, there were several people named Guglielmo. So we don't really know who this person was and how many Guglielmo were in the city. There were probably several Guglielmo. Benjamin living in, the, in Chivitanova during that time, so it's quite difficult to understand um, about his again of childhood. We don't know. Um, I do find I did find some evidence of um, him reading books, and so I, I, as, as far as I remember, there were certain there were several. Um, Uh, documents about um, possession of books and Bibles and interest in several, um, in several kinds of books, but I think no more than Bibles or liturgical um, uh, books. So yeah, we don't, the most, the, the only thing we know about him are in the Chronicle. So You know, we know that this man was a moneylender and he was working for other moneylenders. He was also representative of the community as a Parnas. Um, So he was one of the most important people in the Jewish community of Civitanova because his name is everywhere in the notarial records of the city. And we know that at some point in 1559, he was arrested with several accusations. that we will talk about it i think (laughs) yeah
1: what was the relationship between the roman inquisition and the spanish inquisition can you explain this to listeners who may not have background to contextualize the events documented in your research
0: yeah so we imagine that they were to the roman inquisition and the spanish inquisition were two distinct um you know uh, institutions so the Spanish Inquisition was created in, at the end of the 15th century in, in Spain for, so 1478, for a very specific purpose. That was to um, verify the identity and of Jews and so conversos, so Jewish people who converted to Christianity and Moriscos. So the Muslim people who converted to Christianity and to understand whether these people were really uh, Christians, Catholics, observing the um, Catholic faith, or whether they were just they went back to their religion. So the Spanish Inquisition was looking at these people and make sure that these people were Catholic and they were following Catholicism. and of course was punishing, um, you know, the people who were not uh, following Catholicism as heretics. So we, um, it is clear what is, what, what was clear by back then to people who was an heretic and why it was considered an heretic. Um, the, the Roman inquisition was of course, also targeting heretics and it was uh, established um, to combat heresy, but from a very totally different perspective. So we know that, um, you know, the, the, the Roman Inquisition was, first of all, was established in 1542 uh, with Bol Lice Tabinizio uh, by Paul III, um, and Paul IV, those, so, uh, so the The bad, the evil uh, Pope that I talk about, I've wrote about in my book, back then it was the head of the inquisition. It was a cardinal, it was not Pope yet. It was a cardinal and it was the head of the inquisition and it was one of the most loyal um, counselors of Paul III. Um, So he was really pushing for the establishment of the Roman inquisition in Italy, in Rome, to uh, persecute um, Lutheran ideas, so the spread of uh, the Protestant uh, religion, and to um, to verify, you know, the cor- correctness of uh, ideas and beliefs in uh, in Italy. Of course, they had very different. So, Spain, the Spanish Inquisition, and the Roman Inquisition had totally different mode of modes of operation, and targets. Because, at, as I said, it's true that the Roman Inquisition was born to target heresy, the Protestant Lutheran heresy, but then it was also very involved into the search of uh, conversos. And also in the control and persecution of uh, Jewish uh, beliefs that were not in line uh, with the Catholic tradition. So for example, uh, blasphemies against uh, the name of Jesus, Mary, the saints that were not of course recognized by Judaism. Um, So that's why the Catholic, so the the Roman inquisition targeted very, very soon books and starting with the Talmud so Paul the third so Paul the fourth um, was back then Gian pietro Carafa so this cardinal head of the inquisition was also in charge of the uh, first public burning of the Talmud and uh, Campo de Fiori in Rome in the marketplace and which was a total disaster um yeah so I think, yeah, I think maybe this can help to also contextualize why Paul IV, Fourth, when he became Pope, he was obsessioned really by uh, the um, heresy. and it he really had the Inquisition at one of the dearest things in his life. Um, so the very first thing, it was really uh, his battle against against conversos in Ancona in 1556.
1: Thank you for sharing. We've discussed many aspects of the events that you chronicle. Would it be okay to discuss with greater detail what happened to Benjamin? You alluded to how the author, his brother and other Jews of Nova were arrested by the Roman Inquisition and transferred to Rome to be imprisoned and judged there. But can you explain how this occurred? What were the events that led to their arrest? In particular, can you tell us about Giovanni Battista Bonamici and Achille da Montecchio in relation to what befell Benjamin?
0: Yeah, so... I, I, I will try to, you know, it's, it's a very difficult story. I mean, what happened between the Jewish community, the, the Jews of Civitanova against these two slenders. So, Giovanni Battista Buonamici, who was uh, born, it was a Jewish uh, neophyte. He converted to Christianity, probably in 1558. Um, and it was previously known as Aaron Ben Menachem. And then Achille da Montecchio was the tax collector of the city. Um, so these two people were um, described by the author in the chronicle as the two slanderers who were behind all the plots um, against Jews. So let's 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 think that when Paul IV became pope in 1555, the very first thing it did was to um, issue the Comnimis Absurdum. It was a ball, a document um, restricting the Jews in many ways. So the very first thing was to create um, a ghetto in Rome. So we had the first ghetto was established in Venice in 1516. 15, 15, and then the Jewish ghetto in Rome was, was created in 1555. Immediately, two months a month and a half after Paul IV became Pope. Um, among many other things in this document, the Communis Absurdum, uh, there were also the mention that all the Jews had to live in a Jewish neighborhood, so a ghetto. They had to live uh, far away from Christians, and, and all the synagogues, all the places, all the cities were in the place that were more than one synagogue had to be destroyed. Only one synagogue could stay in a city. So we we don't know exactly in Chividanova how many synagogues there were. I think there was only one synagogue because the community was pretty small. And I had evidence from the archives that only one synagogue is mentioned. So let's imagine that these people were living together, Christians and Jews there were, of course, fights because, not because they were Jews and Christians, but because there were fights and people were going to the market and they were talking and they had uh, interests and things or or that and another thing. And they were fighting. So we have evidence from uh, archival records that people were fighting for all kinds of things. And also Jews and Christians were fighting, but on the other side, these people were living together. They speaking. They were speaking different languages, but because Italian Jews were also spoke Judeo Italian, was a mix of Hebrew and Italian, and it was written in Italian in Hebrew characters, but it was Italian. Um, but they, they also spoke the local dialect of the place where they lived in. And of course, they spoke Hebrew because of the readings, because of the Bible, because of the prayers. Now, these people were living together, and they've been living together for centuries um, in a more, more or less peaceful way. Um, so what happened in Civitanova was that at some point in 1559, The Communimus Absurdum became, um, became, was starting to become enacted. So, um, of course, in Rome in 1555, the Communimus Absurdum was issued, and a month later, the walls of the ghetto were built. In Civitanova, it was not like that because, you know, it, it was the periphery, it was 300 kilometers far away from Rome. And people, local, local governors really didn't bother. And the Jews were still living with the Christians. So it was fine. People were, I mean, of course, there was a, it was a Pope like Paul IV in power, but things were still relatively fine. So in 1559, what happened is that these two people were hating the Jews in, from the bottom of their heart. They decided to, Produce some accusations against the Jews. And this is something that happened all over Italy, all during the Middle Ages, during the early modern period. It was something that happened very, um, I mean, very um, many, many times. So um, Achille da Montecchio and Giovanni Battista Buonamici informed the Jews um, that they were not welcomed to, to stay in the place. To to live close to the Christians and they wrote a letter to them. So First of all, they managed to convince the city council of Civitanova to push the Jews out of the city. So close to the garbage because around the very close to the walls of the city there was also the collection of garbage. And and of course it was not a good place because of you know, uh, any possible diseases and you know uh, sicknesses that were really spreading from garbage. Um, so the city council voted in uh, 1559 for the expulsion of the Jews. And of course the Jews were not happy about that and they appealed uh, to the Pope himself and to the governor of the Marche and they had some help from the governor. But these two people were, this Joan Battista Bonamici and Aquila da Montecchio, Montecchio started to produce more accusations. So they wrote a letter to um, Cardinal Michele Ghislieri, who was the head of the inquisition back then. And they told him that the Jews were saying blasphemies and they were throwing sto- they were throwing stones at some sacred images, Maybe some images of Mary or some images of the saints. We don't know what kind of images. So Michele Ghislieri decided to uh, bring the jews to to arrest the Jews and have them uh, brought from the Roman Inquisition from uh, like some soldiers operating for the Roman Inquisition, and take the Jews to Rome to be try to to have a trial in Rome, uh, the Inquisition uh, tribunal. Um, Yeah, so that's why they were arrested, but they didn't know that. They didn't know, in the Chronicle, the author wrote that he didn't know why he was arrested, he didn't know why this was happening. And they were notified about their charges only when they were transferred to Rome and they arrived in Rome after a trip, very long trip of uh, a week. To get to Rome.
1: Thank you for sharing all of this.
0: Yeah, I also, I also I didn't say something important. I think that the so in in the in the chronicle, the author wrote, writes explicitly that there was a very violent quarrel between um, Achille da Montecchio and um, his, his his brother Samuel Benelatan, and this particular. Um, this particular fight was very high, was highlighted in the Chronicle because this fight also became, you know, um, became very violent. They didn't really um, hit each other. I mean, as far as I, r- I remember in the Chronicle, it was a verbal fight, but it was very violent. And this Christian person, this Achille da Montecchio, called um, the, the Jewish guy, the Jewish brother of, uh, of the author dog. So it was, um, it was very violent. And then he says many other things. Then the judge had to intervene and he had to, to say things, you know, so it was, uh, was very, it it has a big role in the, in the narrative.
1: Can you comment on the epithet dog? What did it mean to insult somebody by labeling that person a dog
0: well i would say that calling someone a dog uh, is not nice it's of course a derogatory term um it has very a variety of negative connotations associated with impurity uh, low status um, moral or ethical values um and of course a dog is not clean um so Naming a, naming a Jewish person a dog is, is one of the most recurring um, insults, um, so there, there, is also, there are also studies about that, um, and also dogs were perceived as a metaphor for uh, usury many times, so moneylenders were associated with dogs. Um, and that's also what we find in Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice when um, Antonio calls Shiloh the dog.
1: Wow, fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Welcome. <laughs> Who is Michele Gislieri? Can you contextualize him?
0: Yeah, so Michele Gislieri that I mentioned before, um, it was the head of the Inquisition back then during Paul IV, uh, as papacy. And he was also one of the most important um, counselors, advisors. So imagine that the Pope was the head of the church, but he was also um, very, very close to the inquisition. So until the very last day, until this very last day, he convened the the inquisition meetings in his room, in his private rooms. And so Michele Ghislieri was uh, also, was a Dominican friar And this is something very important because Dominican friars were in charge of the inquisition and they were also in charge of preaching against the Jews many times. um, And they were very close to the uh, church and the inquisition. Um, So another very important thing is that Michele Ghislieri became Pope. And after Paul IV, we had Pius IV and then we had Pius V. So Michele Ghislieri became pope as Pius V in 1566, and he died in 1572. So why he was important as a pope? Uh, at least for, for, three, for three things. So the first one is that he was um, a very, fond- very uh, important pope in the application of the decrees of this, the Council of Trent. So the Council of Trent was a general council of the Catholic Church to fight the Protestant heresy. So and, and and it ended in 1563. So the Council of Trent produced lots of decrees and laws to enact the decisions taken in Trent during the Council. So it was very important for the reformation of the church, for the internal um, organizational liturgy, prayers and canonization of saints, and you know. Like internal um, policy, internal Catholic policy. Then it was the Pope who excommunicated Elizabeth I, the Queen of England, and you know there was, of course, a very long um, fight with uh, with the with the Anglican uh, kings and in particular with Elizabeth, and and then it was it continued the a very restrictive and repressive policy of Paul III, or Paul IV, sorry, uh, by expo- expelling the Jews from the from the state of the church with the exception of Rome and Ancona in 1569. So all the Jews, according to Pius V, had to be expelled with, from the state of the church with the exception of Rome and Ancona. There were only two cities, so we imagine how a big population of Jews spread all over the state of the church, which were very big, had to be confined in two single cities. So that was why, you know, Pius V, in a way, was a successor of Paul Paul IV, and he continued this very restrictive, very strict policy against the Jews.
1: Among the notable prisoners held in the prison of the Inquisition in Rome, there was an individual named Guillaume Postel. Can you say more about him?
0: Yeah, Guillaume Postel was one of the um, one of the most important and eclectic. Um, um, it's it's hard to define because he was a philosopher, he was a theologian, it was a Kabbalist, and it was many things. Uh, cosmographer, and you know, it is it is a very important and very uh, fascinating figure in the study of the Renaissance. Um, so he was um, at some point he was imprisoned by the Roman Inquisition. He was taken to Rome in the prison of Ripetta uh, where the Inquisition prisons were, and and the very uh, fascinating thing is that it was one of the notable prisoners when our author Benjamin was um, was there. So uh, it's a very nice there is a very nice description of this encounter and the prison, because um, so Benjamin writes that Guillaume Postel, uh, it was French. Uh, but he was talking uh, Hebrew, and he was speaking Hebrew in the prison, and not just speaking Hebrew, but re- reciting the prayers, the Catholic prayers in Hebrew. So we imagine maybe it was saying uh, Hail Mary or the uh, Holy Father in Hebrew. And that's a very fascinating thing. And then because he knew Hebrew, they were also speaking with imagine that these people were in the prison, they couldn't really see each other because it was very dark. And there was no light in these prisons and they were very, um, you know, very dark rooms and very um, filthy and, you know, people were, according to the description we have from the Chronicle, people were staying in a cell of three, four prisoners. And so they couldn't they couldn't really see each other, but they know they could talk with someone. And someone was saying, "I am, you know, uh, I am Martina Mampieri," and the other person, you know, was replying. Um, but they, this very important thing is that they were talking Hebrew in this prison. And so yeah, it was one of wasn't one of the major encounters it did in the prison. But he also met other, I mean, met. Let's say that they didn't really meet or maybe they didn't even talk. But he knew that back then when he was a prisoner, there were a certain number of uh, people who were in prison waiting for a trial. Uh, Because many times people were not imprisoned um, for after the trial. say It's not like today. People were imprisoned while waiting for a trial. And sometimes even the servants of certain noble people or witnesses were imprisoned with the person who was charged of several accusations. So that the witnesses and the people didn't escape the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it gives the description of people, of cardinals, and uh, important people were there. And, and I found it very, very fascinating. This this aspect that was really exciting to work on, try to figure out who was in the prison, who was who, what, why was there and have a list of the prisoners because we don't know we don't know many things about the Catholic the, the, the Roman Inquisition archives because they were burned uh, in 1559 after the death of the Pope, everything was destroyed. So we don't have evidence from uh, the trials because there were no trials or because the documentation was lost.
1: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for providing that information. You're welcome. How did Pope Paul IV die? What controversies surrounded his death?
0: So Paul IV um, was very old. Um, So it was 83 when he died in 1559. And he already had... um, um, some diseases. Um, the previous, in the past few years, um, so he had a disease that was uh, involving an inflammation, an inflammation of his, of the skin uh, in his legs, and then there were several. Uh, he had several internal bleedings, um, several hemorrhages that really led him to stay in bed for a long time, and um, and also to we have very detailed information about that because physicians were writing about his health and they were writing also about his diet and they were writing about the things he did to recover from time i mean sometimes it was recovering some other time it was not recovering it wasn't bad for months Um, but again it was a very old man and and it was quite impressive to die at at the age of 83. in 1559, in the 16th century. Um, let's say his death was um, very, um, I would say that it was problematic for, for his family um, because he didn't die as a saint. Many many popes died in the holder you know, of sanctity. And they were considered saints immediately after that. And when he died, the, the Roman population was very happy because it was a very strict pope, not only towards the Jews, but also to the general population. So that's why when he died in, on the 18th of August of 1559, the Roman population rebelled and they went uh, to release all the prisoners from the prison to uh, commit All kinds of um, crimes around the city, and killings, um, you know, murders and thefts. Um, So it was a very, was a very unstable, very a a period of uh, huge instability. Um, And then the other thing is that, um, so to the the point, (laughs) the Roman people was very angry with the Pope um, because of the taxes, very heavy taxes that the Pope established, uh, raised during the pontificate. Also to finance the war against Charles V, who was the king of Spain and the emperor. Um, So the pontificate of Paul IV was not an easy one from the point of um, uh, foreign policy. And there were many wars and there was famine and there were you know all kinds of things happening there was the flood of the river of the tiber river in rome um so things were not easy for the roman people what happened is that um in 1559 to um you know um express their anger at their best, the the Roman people decided to uh, erase all the coats of arms of the family, coats of arms of the Pope, and also to tear down the statue of the Pope, any kinds of statues of the Pope around Rome. So that was the clear sign that the people were not happy. And this didn't happen so often in the history of the Catholic Church. It happened, but not not in a in this vi- in such a violent way. So uh, Paul IV died, and immediately after that, we know that um, there were several, you know, ceremonies for the funeral of the pope. But because the, the 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 papal court, so the people around the pope, were very scared of what was what was happening in the city, they decided to help, to hold the funerals in a private place in secret. So that you know the Roman people couldn't take the corpse of the Pope and throw it down the river, for example. Um yeah, and then of course, as I mentioned before, um one of the most important thing and terrible things that the Roman people did was to, to burn the, the building of the Inquisition with the tribunal, the tribunal, but most especially the archives. So we don't know, with the exception of two books that were saved from the flames, we don't know anything about this time. We don't know anything about the composition and organization of the, of the prisons. We don't know any evidence about trials and things because everything went burned. So that's why the Chronicle of Benjamin is so important to us, for us today.
1: Thank you so much. In what ways does Pope Paul IV complement and challenge conventional assumptions of evil? What manifestations of evil does he exemplify? What paradigms of evil does he not exemplify? What is and was specifically evil about him? Why is he known as the evil pope? Where does this moniker Come from?
0: Yeah. So the title of the book comes really from a, a sentence of uh, Benjamin. Uh, at some point, he writes that, um, and even in these days, we are forced to live under the rule of the evil pope. And he says something like, "B'Yamim um, Anachnu uh, Garim Resha. Um, or he says that the, this, this particular Pope is Resha, is Belial, but he also associates with him with some figures, some biblical figures. So sometimes it's Amalek, like to mention the fir- very first enemy that the Israelites found on their way in the desert after the 40 the, the year trek in the desert. And uh, many times there are associations with a man. So that's why I was saying that there are certain uh, recurring figures uh, in the Megillatester uh, and in, in this kind of uh, narrative, not only in this particular one, not in, only in this particular chronicle, but also in other chronicles uh, from the same time, the same period. It was, you know, very... Um, common, was very usual for Jews to um, compare the situation of uh, exile or persecution with the situation experienced by the Jews uh, under, um, you know, uh, against against a man. So there were several comparisons, there are comparisons of this kind. And what is called the genre of um, Purim scrolls. They're not really exactly Purim because we are we don't have mention of Purim at all, but there is always this comparison and in the background. And so in many times it was um, uh, compared, Paul the is compared to a man and to, to a devil and sometimes also to a dog. So when he says, um, so that, that was curious because, you know, we have this dog, uh, um, you know, the mention of the dog in the fight between the Jew and the Christian in Chivitanova. And then the author talks about Paul IV as a dog when he's dying in his bed. So he says really like is uh, a dog um, castling in his kennel. Um, you know there are these kinds of things um, all over the the chronicle. He says is evil, and many times he says, you know, we really need to uh, erase completely the memory of Paul the Fourth. So he curses him with imachishmo v'zichrono, and you know there are many different um, kinds of this, you know, this sort. Um, to say that it was evil uh in many ways it was evil because um it was evil toward the Jew- the Roman population who was not happy uh, with him um and it was complaining because of the wars and because of the very strict um um you know atmosphere that people experience in Rome and in the state of the church because of his very Um, strict nature it was a very it was a monk and it was a a very strict one um then of course there are several um you know uh, there are explicit mentions of his being evil because he he, he established the ghetto because he did many things against the jews with the Communis absurdum and and because especially um I mean, the event of 1556. So the burning of the conversos the Portuguese conversos in Ancona. As I said, Paul IV, the very first two things he did was the Comunimis Absurdum and the burning of the conversos in Ancona, which was very, it was a tragic, one of the most tragic events happened in the history of Italian Jewry, still today. I mean, after the Holocaust, of course. because these people were burnt alive, and 27 people, 28 people considered a woman, including a woman. Benjamin, so our author, was present there and he experienced, he said, at least what he wrote, is that he was an eyewitness of the tragic event and he saw people burning on the stake with his own eyes. So that's really. The, the most impressive and most tragic thing he experienced during Paul IV's life, during Paul IV pontificate.
1: Thank you for providing that perspective for us. What does this book teach us about the history of Jewish-Christian relations?
0: Well, I I hope, um, I mean, I don't know what it teaches, uh, but I, I, I hope it teaches something. Um, so first of all, that what we have, we cannot be just happy with what the archival documents don't say, because we you know, as we said, we don't have these archival documents, archival evidence from the Roman Inquisition organization, uh, modes of operation, and trials. So we couldn't just be happy with what doesn't exist. So we need to go beyond that, and I think the chronicle of Paul the Fourth. Um, so this translation I provided and the commented edition I provided is really showing that um, you know there is so much more about uh, to, to learn and so much more to investigate because we sometimes we don't have the sources in the Christian archives and sometimes we don't have the sources we need in the Jewish archives so we really need to integrate both perspectives the Jewish one and the Christian one in this case but because we are talking about Jewish Christian relations but the same is the same for Jewish Muslim relations or Muslim Christian relations or whatever so we really need to integrate the sources and compare and cross them. Um, of course, the this particular chronicle um, teaches us that there are, of course, cer- certain patterns that are repeating themselves. Because we know that, for example, slanderers or the Jews, Christian slanderers, were accusing Jews of throwing stones or doing certain things against the Jews um, because they wanted to eliminate them, just because maybe they were competitors in the market. They were both merchants or they were, I don't know, they had personal antipathy. But, you know, there are also other things that stand out uh, because, for example, the Jewish population of Chivitanova was supporting the Jews. It was not against the Jews. With the exception of these two slanderers, who had connections in the city council. And so they were able to uh, maneuver, um, you know, the people in the council and then really have the the law against the Jews, um, the, the decree of expulsion of the Jews in Chivitanova. But, you know, the people, when he says the chronicle, so the chronicler, the author writes explicitly that the Jewish population, most of the Jewish population was in their favor, and they were standing with them against the two slanderers. So we don't have so what I think is that Jewish-Christian relations need to be uh, read at a macro level. Like, you know, we need to learn what a Pope did against the Jews and how the Jews reacted, what was the you know, the general policy against the Jews in a certain year, in a certain decade, in a certain century. But then we also need to look at the micro level. So what really people were doing in their community, where people were really were doing in their city, what were the relations in the city, neighbor to neighbor, um, local councillor, local local city council, to the local Jews, and you know priests against the Jews, slanderers against the Jews. So I really think this very small, you know, we really need to look at. That at this at these events in a very you know in a very in very close up way uh, with a very with a zoom with a focus on these very little stories to have a very a deeper understanding of what was the general uh, phenomenon
1: what does your book contribute to the study of Jewish historiography
0: so as I said, I was always interested in these um, kinds of chronicles um, since my um, studies as a student. Um, I think it, this particular chronicle um, can be, you know, seen can be read in a historical way. Let's say that. Let's say that, for example, all the previous chronicles, including the Safavid Hassin but also including the Shalchereta Kabbalah by Gedaliah ben and also the Divraya Amim uh, by Yosefa Cohen. All these kinds of chronicles that were um, produced after the experience of the diaspora, and the expulsion from Spain, and different kinds of expulsions that were uh, experienced by these authors in the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, um, they still have some, um, deep, let's say very theological and ideological, um, you know, uh, perspective. I would say that, for example, um, there are many, uh, explanations. So m- many times these authors, these medieval early modern authors were, were writing about the history of, uh, their, their own history the history of the Jewish people as a way to remember you know as a way not to forget what happened to the Jews but in a very um, pessimistic way many times you know in a very what was as being called by Yerushalmi that i mentioned at the very beginning was but it's been called by Yerushalmi the lacrimous conception of history you know something that we need to cry upon because we have been so uh, miserable because of the kings, because of the Christians and their Spanish inquisition doing this and that. Now, Benjamin does the same. I'm saying that many times it says in the Chronicle that they're only responsible people for the current state, the current situation in the state of the church, meaning the establishment of the ghetto and the restrictions against the Jews, all kinds of accusations that were produced against the Jews And this particular situation, like a man, an innocent man arrested by the Roman Inquisition and brought to Rome, are products, were products of, you know, were just the results of the sins of the same Jews. So he says many times, we are in this situation because of our sins. And this is something that it's not a modern uh, conception this is really a medieval like you know way of thinking about you know everything has a, you know a consequence because the consequence is that we were not good Jews we sinned and also we are in this state of slavery, exile, expulsion and misery because we are not good Jews. so this is still present. In, a, in the background of this chronicle but there is a there is I would say um, um, a different you know um, layer because Benjamin also says we are in this situation but I also want to remember everything and I will do that I will also remember what happened to the Christians. I will also remember in detail the history of the papacy. This was something that was not really needed, I think. This is something that he wants to do because he wants to produce an account the most reliable as possible for the future generations. We don't know exactly how this text really transmitted from a generation to another, because again, we don't have evidence of the original manuscript from the 16th century. But we we know that this person had you know, this feeling. So my specific contribution with this book was to, you know, have um have this book, I mean, to have the book accessible to have the Chronicle accessible to study a the Jewish Christian, like how Jewish Christian relations uh, were in this specific and very important period that was the pontificate of Paul the fourth, and B the history of the inquisition itself because again we don't have evidence we don't have any sources from this time like internal sources so is it possible to uh study the history of the inquisition from jewish sources the answer is yes so i think yeah i think yes Uh so my book was really you know about that. Stud, studied the history of Judaism from a Christian perspective, but also studied the history of Christianity from a Catholic, the Catholic Church from a Jewish perspective. Again, I really believe, and this is my, you know, my methodology. Um, at you know, in a nutshell, you know, I really believe we need to interact and we need to evaluate our sources, uh, all kinds of sources we have and different languages if possible and you know cross them and try to understand try to figure out the big picture because there is so much more that we can do as scholars and you know to have the big picture we cannot just be happy with what has been done by others in the past and we cannot just be happy with very small details we need to cross we need to dialogue we need to compare
1: Thank you for the wisdom, eloquence, and erudition that you have shared with us in the course of this conversation. Thank you for your precious and beautiful insights during the course of our dialogue.
0: Thank you so much, thank you.
1: As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your research on Isaiah Sonne? Can you describe what yeah. you've been learning about him
0: yeah so i as i said in the beginning i am working now on my second book that is totally different from the first one um both because of the topic and because of the century you know i'm an early modern historian by training um now i'm working on um, 20th century um so it's uh, a <laughs> It was very unexpected. Um, I didn't think about uh, doing anything like that, but I found very interesting things about Zone and I really wish to um, produce um, something about about him. Um, And more specifically, it will be, um, I call it like an intellectual and cultural biography because I would like to picture Zoné as um, a student, scholar, um, paleographer, bibliographer, librarian, um, you know, lecturer, but librarian, but also uh, collector and dealer. So he was a very important person in the history of the Jewish, in the development of the field of uh, the history of Jewish printing and censorship. Because as a historian and as a lover of Italy, he was really into uh, lots of different topics uh, related to Italian Jewish history and culture. Um, he printed, he published several articles and very important contributions on the history of the Jewish printing and the history of censorship. And it was one of the first, very, I mean, very first pioneering scholars. To open this field of Jewish studies, um, I mean, Jewish printing, history, the Jewish book in uh, Jewish studies. Um, but still, again, I think it was a very neglected person, a very neglected scholar. And still today, I find uh, his papers and his contributions very relevant to the field. I'm not the only person because, you know, also librarians, lots of librarians, Jewish librarians all over the world working in Judaica and Ebraica collections uh, have the same uh, feeling um, and they study his contributions. So um, yeah what I what I discovered um, is massive archives. that um, it sort of was a very controversial person for some um, aspects but it was an excellent scholar and I'm really trying to, um work on this um you know monograph and um, yeah and i hope i will i'll be able really to um give um uh, a clear and also just picture of him um yeah as i said in relation to the history of the jewish book and and in this in a very particular moment and in a in a an international perspective because it was really living all over the places in a very interesting and very hard time that was the Second World War.
1: Thank you for the sacrifice and all you've invested to bring this knowledge, this wisdom, and these precious, priceless, and indispensable perspectives into fruition for all humanity, for all your readers for all our listeners and for all who will engage with your masterpiece of a book.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you thank you for your kind words and for you know, uh welcoming me and yeah, giving me this opportunity to talk about my research. Thank you. I really appreciate that.
1: Thank you. This has been my sincere and humble honor and I can hardly thank you enough for being beyond brilliant in your scholarship. Thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host Ari Barbalat signing off on the new books in Jewish studies podcast. I would like to end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude to Martina Mampieri for her time today, her generosity today, and her thorough and conscientious responses to all the questions we discussed and to all the subject matter that came up in the course of today's conversation. Martina, I am beyond grateful for your kindness and for all the virtues that you shared and conveyed in today's conversation
0: thank you so much it's really been my pleasure and honor thank you
1: as we end today's dialogue i am ari barbalat your host on the new books in jewish studies podcast today i've been in dialogue with dr martina mompieri we have been discussing her newly published book living under the evil pope the Hebrew Chronicle of Pope Paul the by Benjamin Nehemia Ben elnathan from Civita Nova Marche, of the 16th century, published in Leiden, Netherlands by Brill Publishers, 2020. Martina is a Martin Buber Fellow, part of the Martin. Buber Society of Fellows at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She is also a lecturer in the Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jewry at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Martina, I am unbelievably grateful.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again. (laughs) Thank you.